remember being taught that it's the thought that counts. You know the scenario, you're a small kid, you're given a gift, uh, it's wrapped and so are you because you can't wait to open it. Uh, You can't wait to see what's inside, you open it up and you just don't really like it. It's kind of disappointing, it's the wrong colour or the wrong brand or just not, uh, uh, not really your type of toy. And so to help your young mind, remember you're a kid in this story, to help your young mind, mind grapple with the disappointment, your mother tells you, well, it's the thought that counts. It's the fact that someone thought to get your gift that really matters and you should appreciate that. And it's a really important lesson. It's a great life lesson to learn that our gratitude should extend towards the giver, not the gift. You know, the, the, what's really important in the scenario is the relationship, not the thing that you get. And so we should be honoured by their efforts, even if they slightly miss the mark. So it's the thought that counts, but what about when it isn't? What about the times when the thought doesn't count for anything at all? Like when you don't get your wife a present, but you tell her, oh, I thought about it. And it's the thought that counts, right? Wrong. Or when you step over your clothes on the floor and you think, oh, I should pick them up. What's the thought that counts? Wrong. Or you wish you could play music and you think, if only I practiced when I was younger. Well, all the thinking in the world's not going to make it so. Or when you do something to hurt someone you love and you say, but I knew it was wrong and I feel really bad about it. Well, does that thought make up for anything much in the end? Well, here's one. I bet you've done it. I know I have. When you say to someone, oh, that must be really hard. I will pray for you. And then you don't. The problem with all those thoughts or those intentions is that the actions don't match. Uh, It actually, in the end, it makes all the thoughts worse in the end uh, because they're empty. They're hypocritical. It makes things even more hurtful. And so it is the same with faith. The thought doesn't count on its own. If the thought is on its own, then it's worthless. It's dead. When faith is only a thought without matching your life, then James goes far as to say it's not actually faith, whatever it is you might call it, it's not faith at all. So this is such an important topic uh, for a handful of reasons. Here's two reasons why this is a really important passage and topic to think about. Uh, Number one, faith is at the core of our salvation. If you've been in church for a little while, you will have heard these words. It is by faith you have been saved. It's by faith you've been saved. So this is obviously a really important discussion to have about what is the nature of faith. We'd better know what faith is and what faith isn't. But it's also a really important subject because inconsistent Christianity is one of the biggest turn-offs for non-Christians. See, we're criticised out there, beyond these walls, all the time for the things we believe. But if our lives at least match our beliefs, at the very least that earns some respect from our enemies. Hypocrisy, on the other hand, just invites scorn and it kills evangelism. So here's how roughly the next 20 minutes are going to look. We're going to open up the passage. Uh, I'm going to discuss briefly a theological debate and end by giving some comfort, I hope. So the passage I'm breaking up like this. Uh, It's a pretty straightforward breakdown. If you read it, you'll probably come up with the same thing. First, faith without works is dead. I have a contact on Facebook Uh, She's always talking about uh, expelling the toxic people from your life. It seems like every second post every week is, gee, toxic people, you just got to get rid of them. There's no point making time for them in your life. This has been going on for years. Obviously, 
she's talking about expelling the toxic people, but obviously there's still a lot of toxic people swimming around in her life. She's not doing what she says you must do. Now, the world is full of people who claim some sort of faith or belief system or credentials, but whose life doesn't back it up one scrap. James talks about this kind of person in verse 14. He says the person, uh, he describes them like this, the person who says they have faith, but they do not have works. Uh, I don't know if it's just because I'm a minister now in the church, but I feel like often people uh, are trying to prove their religious credentials when they speak to me. Uh, And so, uh, you know, even uh, the plumber I had in the house the other week was showing me his cross tattoo. uh, And people will pull out the the cross on their neck, uh, around their neck, to prove to me that they are a Christian person or someone who shares my faith. They'll tell me that they went to a Catholic school. Or maybe even they attended Bible college and they can recite all the creeds. All of these things, but their conversation is as foul as the next person's. Uh, they don't attend church and haven't for years. Uh, you would, you've known them maybe for years and you never would have guessed that there was a faith behind the life that they lead. It's the kind of person James is talking about, the person who sort of wears faith as some sort of credential, but whose life just doesn't square up with that at all. And so James asks the all-important question at the end of verse 14, can that faith save him? We're saved by faith, but is that all that faith is, just saying you've got it? Now, James doesn't exactly answer the question right away, but he gives an example of something really dumb. You see, for example, someone that you love in desperate need of food and shelter and you bless them, saying, go in peace, be warm and well-fed. But you don't open your door or your wallet and you don't do anything about their immediate need. And in case you're tempted to jump to the defence of the heartless sod in the example that James gives, uh, James has made it really easy by setting a pretty low bar. This isn't... uh, This person... uh, um, it isn't just some unknown hobo or the village drunk or a notorious outlaw. They are a brother or sister, he says. Someone who is known to you, who exists in your community, community of faith. Someone who you're meant to share a mutual love with. And yet someone whose immediate needs you just pass by and do nothing about. So back to James' question. Does faith without works save a man? Well, do well-wishers shelter the homeless or feed the hungry? Not really. So I guess his answer is no. Faith without works does not save a man. That is not a saving faith. He says in verse 17 that faith, if that's all it is, in itself, without works, faith in itself uh, is dead. Faith without action is intrinsically broken. That sort of faith uh, will save you from nothing. So that's his first point in, uh, in the first few verses. Then in verses 18 and 19, he makes a very similar point, basically to say that faith and works are inseparable. He, he introduces us to another hypothetical scenario. Verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Now, when you think about it, this is a bit odd. Uh, I scratched my head over this one a little bit this week. It's kind of the wrong way around at first look, you would think. His adversary in verse 14 that we looked at just before is saying that he does have faith, but he doesn't have works. Uh, His adversary here in verse 18 is saying that he doesn't have faith, you have faith, but I have works. 
I would have expected the person James is having this imaginary argument with to, to sort of say the other way around, to claim the, the high ground and say that they have faith, uh, whereas James, the other person, has works. But here's the point, I think, that James is arguing against. He's arguing against the person who is trying to separate the two, as if they don't go hand in hand. Someone who suggests that faith and works are both important spiritual blessings, they're just separate. One person gets one and they get to lead, you know, the pious life and the other person gets the other and they get to be the man or woman of action to do truly good works without faith. Well, he says in reply, show me your faith from your works. Uh, Sorry, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Well, you can't show a faith without works. You can't show anything at all. But you can demonstrate faith with how you act. Uh, In fact, that's half the point of good works. The good works are supposed to be uh, a proof, the evidence, the fruit of your faith. So it's simply impossible for true faith to exist without fruit. Because even, uh, James says that even bad faith has fruit. Even misplaced faith or faith that's uh, wrong and bad to the core still produces a kind of a fruit. It still produces action. This is what he says in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You believe the right thing about God. You do well. Or even the demons believe. His enemies believe and they shudder. So in this verse, the demons have two things right. They believe in God. That's, that's good. And they act according to their beliefs. They are enemies of God and they shudder in response. So even the wrong kind of belief produces a response. Their belief is messed up, of course, because there's no mutual love, there's no camaraderie or or shared um, purpose. They believe in God as someone who knows about the existence of their enemies and hates them or is afraid of them. But even with their topsy-turvy faith, they still respond. There is still uh, a physical response to their faith. So if your body doesn't react in the least to the faith that you confess, then there's no real faith there at all. And finally, as we continue in the passage, uh, James gives two examples of this kind of faith. Uh, And they're interesting, the the ways he chooses, uh, the ones that he chooses, they're from two opposite sides of the pond. On the one hand, we have the great patriarch Abraham, and on the other hand, we have a Canaanite woman who is a prostitute. But each of them have a similar uh, formula to them. Both of them believe in God first and then they prove their belief with how they act. So Abraham, on the one hand, he believes God's promise to him that he and his ageing barren wife will bring forth an entire nation from their own blood. Rahab, on the other hand, believes that the land she lives in will belong to the people of God who is Lord of heaven and earth. And both of them, in faith, respond accordingly. Abraham does one thing. His wife has a child, and years later, Isaac is still their only child. So it's looking like he's going to be their only ever child. But when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son on an altar, Abraham is convinced enough in the following through of God's promises that God will raise him again from the dead so that Abraham goes ahead with it anyway. He goes all the way to the point of binding his son on the altar and raising the knife in his hand before God tells him it was a test of his faith all along. But in the end, his action passed the test, proved that his faith 
was about as frighteningly real as a faith can get. Rahab, on the other hand, uh, her belief uh, in sort of this all-conquering, powerful God, uh, in believing these things, she she shelters the enemy spies um, so that she can side with God, um, even becoming a traitor to her own people because she believes in the power and purposes of God first. And so she wants to align herself with him. And that's her faith producing a response. What's interesting is that both of these examples appear just three or four pages further forward in your own Bible uh, in Hebrews chapter 11. And if you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, it's basically a highlights reel of all the great people of faith in the Bible. Uh, and, um, and so Abraham is number one on the list and Rahab uh, features pretty prominently further down the list as well. These are people who the writer of Hebrews says are people of great faith. And James doesn't agree with that assessment, doesn't disagree with that assessment at all. They are absolutely people of faith. Do you know how we know? Look at how they lived and the choices they made and the things they did. James's point is simply that faith always follows through in action. Or like he says of Abraham in verse 22, and this has got to be some kind of key verse for understanding the relationship between faith and action. Verse 22 He says, faith was active along with works. They're always hand in hand. And faith was completed by his works because works are the fruit or the product of faith, the evidence. And so he finishes again in verse 26 by saying again, faith without works is dead. Now that's the passage, like I said, uh, this passage does lead us into um, a theological debate. Uh, something that's been around uh, for years and years and years. Uh, It strikes me that uh, as we've just gone through the passage in James, that there really isn't any controversy that I can find in the things that he says. He's just saying that an authentic faith will always be matched uh, by some sort of fruit in your life. Uh, Conviction and behaviour go together. But in case you weren't already aware, I want to highlight highlight a theological controversy that surrounds uh, this passage of James. If you take certain sentences from here, they appear to contradict sentences from other parts of the Bible. I'll show you a couple of the juiciest ones, uh, and I hope you'll see what I mean. James says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Faith apart from works is useless, James says. And yet Paul, in Ephesians, says, is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul in Romans says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. Seems pretty contradictory, doesn't it? Uh, Later on, James says, uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And then Paul uses Abraham to say what looks like a different point. He says, we say that faith was counted counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, those words are justified and righteousness in the Greek that they were written in is from the exact same word. Uh, And so uh, Abraham, according to James, was considered righteous because of his works. And according to Paul, Abraham was considered righteous because of his beliefs. 
Now, these differences look stark enough on their own, uh, but fast forward 1,500 years from the time they were written to the Protestant Reformation and uh, the emotion of the, of the confusion gets even heightened because Martin Luther um, took real offence to some of James's words. Uh, he was a Catholic monk. He discovered uh, by reading Paul's writings that he didn't need to make up for his own sins because of the singular free gift of God's grace. So in short, Ephesians 2 verse 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. And nothing impacted on Martin Luther more than these truths. But Luther was caught in a Catholic tradition that maintained otherwise, that to some extent you need to cover for your own sins by jumping through certain hoops, by doing penance, by uh, doing confession, by saying various prayers and chasing certain spiritual experiences. And so he was uh, sort of uh, on the hamster wheel of constantly trying to make up for his own sin. And then he reads that it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not because of anything, not by anything you've done. And freedom for him. And then the argument between him and the Catholic Church was about a great variety of other things as well, uh, which just caused to even further raise the pitch of this particular debate uh, because, you know, each side wants to score points against the other uh, and so you don't want to give up any ground at all. So Martin Luther expressed frustration at the book of James. Uh, he, was a, he was frustrated at James for writing this letter and for the fact that it was preserved because it muddied the waters of what he was holding so firm that it is by faith alone that you are saved and not by works. It was like James was giving ammunition to his opponents. And so when Martin Luther translated the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts into his native German language for his native German people, he wrote a preface to the New Testament in which he calls James an epistle of straw and second-rate compared to the rest of the books in the Bible, less useful. Now, we owe a lot to Martin Luther and his legacy. Uh, but let me say, that's not the most controversial or, uh, or disgraceful thing he ever said. Uh, we, we need to uh, pick through uh, to find the good uh, and the bad in, in any of our heroes. But let me offer a couple of tools for, uh, for understanding the apparent differences between James's take on faith uh, and what we see in other parts of the Bible. If we can understand the differences of context and timing, then all the difficulties, I really believe, dissolve completely. Now, I'm as sceptical as anyone about, you know, neat explanations uh, because I'm quite happy to live with a little bit of tension and unresolved uh, complexity and things but but this is not I don't think one of those situations I think this is really quite straightforward when you understand the difference uh, of context and timing so the first matter is context James and Paul are writing with different surrounding contexts when James talks about works he's mainly talking about doing good and acts of love things you might call the moral law. And look, I'm not just importing this on James myself. If you read James's letter, you see exactly that. What does James go on about? Well, what's he, what have we already covered just in chapters 1 and 2? Be humble with wealth. Stay strong when you are tempted. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Care for the poor. Don't play favourites. Love your neighbour as yourself. You see the kind of good works that James is, is on about? It's just being a decent human being and loving other people generously. 
James is promoting all of these things as good things to do. And for the record, Paul promotes every single one of these things as well. Absolutely. So when Paul argues against the usefulness of works, or what he calls works of the law in one of the quotes I put up there, he's talking almost exclusively about circumcision and sometimes about ceremonial food laws. Like I say, I'm not making this up. You can read the passages, read the words around the passages for yourself and you'll see that that's the context that he's speaking into. These aren't moral acts. They are exclusively religious rites. So some other examples of the same sort of thing uh, that, uh, that Paul is speaking against, in a way, things like animal sacrifices, things like annual feasts, things like that that you'll find in the Old Testament, or even things that you might find today, like being a member of a church, or a baptism, or saying the sinner's prayer. All of these things that exist exclusively in this religious kind of uh, world are not the things that James is speaking against. Paul is simply saying, for the record, Paul isn't speaking against these things either. He is simply saying that there is no physical formula for getting into heaven. None of these things are bad. They just won't save you. You must be in a true, trusting relationship with God, and that is faith. That's what Paul's on about. And again, James wholeheartedly agrees with that. He assumes it to be true, And he's simply taking time in his book to define what faith doesn't mean. Faith isn't just about your thoughts in your head, but it's best fruit in action. The second matter is timing. This is a bit, uh, we've already sort of half given this away. When Paul is arguing against the usefulness of these works, he's talking about people who think that you need to jump a certain hoop to earn salvation. Remember, he's he's talking about uh, circumcision mainly. Uh, and so he's saying, uh, he's talking about people who exist, bef- uh, who are trying to do works before they are saved to become saved. But Paul does insist that once you've taken hold of your salvation by faith in Christ alone, then that faith will later produce fruit. So that's why understanding the timing in in mind for Paul and James is so important. Paul says, you don't need to be good to get in. James agrees. James says, if you're in, you should expect to see a changed life. And Paul agrees. There is no disagreement between them. They're just speaking into different contexts and talking about uh, different points on the timeline. said at the start, I want to close by offering some comfort. It's really important, I think, to close with, uh, with comfort and a message of peace at this point, uh, because I don't want you to go away thinking to yourself that you need to prove uh, at the end of this, that you need to prove anything to anyone. I don't want you to go away feeling uh, angst about whether you're doing enough. Remember the truth that lies right behind everything James has to say You are saved, as we sung in a song earlier, you are saved by the blood of Jesus only by the grace of God. doesn't matter what you have done, good or bad, you are saved by grace, the grace of God. And you cannot earn a gift like that by scraping together even your best life's work. James is really critical, though, of the person who says that their faith is, is just a private affair. 
but who doesn't have any actual evidence to show for it. But I want you to have this comfort too, that the life of authentic faith is not necessarily a life of grand gestures and extravagant actions. Most often the authentic life of faith does exist in the quiet places, in your home, in your heart. The most faithful actions often do go unseen. They're not public. So I'm going to close just by offering a quick-fire list of real-world examples of a life of faith that I hope give you uh, maybe something to aspire to, but more often than not, a bit of a checklist to go, yeah, these are, this is a fruit that I'm seeing God produce in my life. I'll start with a nice easy one. Getting out the door for church on a Sunday. Well done. Fighting the pull of wealth even while you strive for excellence in your work. That's the fruit of a life of quiet faith. Listening. Keeping your mouth closed and listening is an act of faith. Direct debiting part of your pay to a child in poverty. It's a quiet, unseen act of faith. Introducing yourself to a new person with a smile. That might be at church, it might be at work, it might be at a barbecue. Speaking gently behind closed doors to your wife and your kids. Apologising to your wife and your kids when you're out of order. Choosing to never say an unkind word about another person, to not get drawn into gossip and slander. Praying when no one else is around. Can you see how um, the life of faith isn't necessarily all about grand gestures and extravagant actions, but the life of faith can be a quiet, private affair. Uh, But it's not only private, uh, because uh, we do exist in community, uh, and these things do in time show. All of these things, as simple as they might sound, the Lord Jesus is very, very pleased with any one of those things. Uh, the, the quiet things, in fact, Jesus is maybe even more impressed by because it's unlikely to turn into grandstanding or virtue signalling or anything like that. So if faith without works is dead, works without faith are no better. But faith without works is dead and so let's uh, hope and expect uh, to see uh, the fruit the produce of that in our lives. I'm going to spend a minute in prayer and we're going to sing again to close. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you uh, for the time that James has taken to uh, define this faith. If faith is so central to our salvation, well, it's really good for us to know what it is and what it isn't. Faith really is uh, to live in a trusting relationship with you. And all of our beliefs spill out uh, into the things we do. So if we truly believe, then of course uh, our actions and our lives will follow. We pray that you will help us uh, to go about quietly in the private places, uh, following you uh, and living the life of faith. We pray also that you'll help us to be bold and humble when circumstances require Uh, that we lead our life of faith uh, out in the open as well. And we pray that as we do this and we do it together 
and we encourage one another uh, that others might know that we are your disciples uh, by the faith that we share and the love that we have for one another. Amen.